Welcome to the Cowboy Office Show, where you'll experience expert analysis and epic discussion on key pillars of the equine industry, including sports, business, hobby, and the horse lifestyle. Your co-hosts are Jody Brainerd and Brian Dykert, industry veterans with over 120 years combined living the cowboy lifestyle. The Cowboy Office Show will help you get involved, ask more questions, and create change. We'll keep riding for you as together we learn from the ride already ridden, learn to listen better to our horse, and make our industry better for all. Each weekly episode, we'll take a ride around the industry in less time than you can load the truck and trailer. Drop your email at cowboyoffice.com to receive weekly updates and never miss an episode. Settle up as we ride into today's show. Well, happy new year, horse world. It's 2023 already. Uh, We're all another year older and hopefully a year wiser. Welcome to the Cowboy Office. I'm Brian. And I'm Jody. I'd like to welcome you to this great episode in our series, Status of the Horse Show Industry. You know, we've got a great guest today uh, to talk horse industry, and we're starting right at the top. We cannot go any higher. Our, uh, our guest today is Julie Broadway. She is the president of the American Horse Council. She is a horsewoman herself, and she's got extensive background with the Morgan horse industry. Julie, welcome Thanks. Happy New Year, Jody and Brian. I'm delighted to be with you. I was just saying before we began the recording that, wow, where did 2022 go? I can hardly believe it's January. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yep. How, how, how fast time marches. And as we get older, it seems to go a little faster. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it goes faster. Yes, it does. <laughs> Yeah, well, tell us for a minute. Um, we will, for the audience, um, have all of the Horse Council's direct contacts. Not only can they go to your website, which is very extensive at uh, horsecouncil.org, but we will also put direct links through the Cowboy Office website. So um, they'll be able to get to you guys, uh, communicate, look, listen. But tell us, you've got some new offices, and it's a new year, so tell us what that's all about. And it's always a chore to move, but... Uh, so fill us in. Yep, just a little background for those that aren't familiar with the American Horse Council. We were formed in 1969 uh, to be the voice of the equine industry in Washington, D.C. Uh, we've had a number of offices downtown in D.C., but most recently our office, which was located very near the White House, I could see Lafayette Park from my window, uh, has the building was sold. And so we had to make a choice. And so we just moved uh, uh, December the 15th, right at the end of the year, and packed everything up. And boy, you can accumulate some stuff in all those years, guys. And it took a little while to, to get it all organized. But we're excited about being in our new in our new office, which is what you see behind me, and uh, sort of getting ourselves going for the, for the new year. Well, that's exciting. Yes, there's, there's a good and a bad with moving, right? It helps you kind of get reorganized and clean out some of the old and get ready for the new, but it's always a chore. Yeah, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of things that I'm going to be looking for in this office, and it's going to be a little more challenging to put my fingertips on them. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, understand. So tell us us more specifically about the American Horse Council, what it is and what it does, and why do all of us as horse people need to be paying attention? Well, the mission of the American Horse Council is to protect and strengthen the U.S. equine industry. We're the voice of the industry in Washington, D.C. We are are bipartisan, and we work on both legislative and regulatory issues. I'll talk some more about that in a little while, while while that's important. But we represent all aspects of the industry. It doesn't matter if you're a horse owner uh, or you're um, part of a syndicate uh, or you're um, just a trail rider or you are a bull rider or whatever you do in our space you're you're part of who we represent Um, that means we have uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 or 200 large organizations ranging from AQHA to PRCA to American Paint Horse to name just a few down to um, equine veterinarians equine accountants equine attorneys small businesses of all sizes and natures that are part of our industry down to individual owners we have a lot of owners across the country, probably we think about 2 million, and uh, we um, really rely on them to tell us what are the things that they are facing, what are the issues that they are dealing with, and to give us feedback on the things that we're working on for them in D.C. I often describe something that starts off in D.C. is likely to trickle down 
or it could go the opposite way. An issue that comes up locally or at the state level could begin to uh, trickle up or, or move up the chain and become uh, something that we see across the states. And there's lots of examples of those. So it's really important that we keep our ear to the ground. We really know what's going on state, local, and federal level. I don't have enough resources to go to state capitals or at the local level. So we really concentrate on federal issues, but we really work hard with our partners, which is the Coalition of State Horse Councils. Not every state has a state horse council. There are 26 official state horse councils that we recognize across the country. So we've got some, some room for improvement. Um, but what that means is that we rely on those state horse councils to help us do the lobbying and the grassroots advocacy work that has to be done at the state and local level. They, in turn, are our resources to help us when we need to work on federal issues, too. Well, let me elaborate just a touch, because if 26 states have organized affiliates for the Horse Council, what's the, why aren't the rest of them? So that's a great question. Some of it has to do with resources, meaning revenues, the means to support a state Horse Council. In some states, and I'm going to give you three examples, th three states that are the largest in horse population are California, Texas, and Florida. Those three states do not have a state horse council. And well, that's isn't really that interesting. Isn't that interesting? But I believe personally that the reason for that is because it's such a diverse population of equestrians and equine enthusiasts in those states that it's hard for them to get themselves organized and to really work cohesively as a state horse council. So it's a little it's a little more uh, sporadic in some of those states for those reasons. Some states have a great revenue stream. Maryland's a good example. They have a lot of different ways that they get funding from the state. They sell equestrian license plates. They certify stables and barns, and they get a, a piece of that money. There's a number of different avenues, but some states don't have that. They really rely on membership dues or maybe a horse expo in their state as a source of revenue. So in some states, they have volunteers that handle the state horse council, makes it a little more challenging. Whereas in other states, they have paid staff and they can do so much more. That's interesting. So when you talk about revenue streams for state horse councils that would be coming through state tax processes because I, I'm, I'm interpreting because what you said was on, you know, if they, if, which is business licenses, right? So mm -hmm. if states would put that in where horse businesses would need to be buying an annual license and a portion of that could be a revenue stream. So that's food for thought for, right? Right, right. We also see other states that sell different kinds of signage, uh, whether that's an equine liability sign to, to the facilities or um, crossing signs for trails or those kinds of things. So lots of different ways that each state has come up with an avenue to, to have some revenues. That's, that's, that's very interesting. I, and I, yeah. I, go ahead, John. Right. Okay, well, you know, Julie, this is a great conversation, and the three of us have grown up in the horse business, and, you know, I was just thinking about this as you were talking about numbers and talking about Florida and California and, and diverse groups of people, and, and you know that, you know, the cowboy lifestyle is one, uh, I mean, you know, the Western lifestyle, rather you're in the livestock business, you know, that's a... a group of fiercely independent people, right? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's like, you're not going to tell me what to do, right? You're not going to do that. And, and I, you guys do so much. And I, I think that along with, you know, it's uh, horses are kind of like cars. You might want to drive a Ford pickup truck and somebody else wants to drive a Corvette and they don't all want to, they don't want to take care of each other. I mean, how, how, how difficult is it for you to try and unite these groups. I mean, I, I assume that's got to be one of the biggest issues that you're dealing with. It, it is. And I repeat over and over to audiences that we operate by consensus. And what that means is that when the industry can coalesce around a decision or a solution or a strategy, the American Horse Council takes a position. But if we are split as an industry, we don't want to cause any more divisiveness amongst the industry. So we remain neutral. We speak to all aspects of the issue, but we don't weigh in. And sometimes that's frustrating for people. They'll say, why can you not take a position on this particular issue? And I give examples. I say, like for the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act that went through, we had some thoroughbred folks that were, um, pro were proponents of that. We had some standard bred folks that were 
opponents of that, as was the American Quarter Horse Association. So it would be inappropriate for the American Horse Council to pick a pick a side and alienate one group or another. So what we do is we try to be an honest information broker. That's my phrase when I go into a congressional office. I'm here to tell you all aspects of this issue and where I'm neutral because we're split as an industry, I'm going to tell you exactly why we're split and I'm going to put you in touch with the right people to hear their version of the story so you can make up your own mind about what you think is the right thing to do as a congressional member. Well, on that subject, tell us the difference between legislative functions and authority and the things that you're involved in because as legislature moves through there versus regulatory. Okay. And why does a horse owner need to be paying attention to that? So, as you probably know, legislative side is when there are pieces of a bill that are being considered to be implemented, and some of them may take effect and may have may have unintended consequences. So we spend a lot of time in congressional offices doing education, trying to make sure congressional members are well-informed and understand all aspects of a particular piece of legislation that they're going to be making a decision about. Then on the regulatory side, once something becomes um, approved, then the agencies are assigned to take care of that. So U.S. Department of Agriculture, Environmental Protection Agency, uh, Bureau of Land Management. So the regulatory side is working with those agencies now that we have rules and regulations to make certain that those are being handled appropriately. And then if they need a little tweaking, if there's a little something that needs to be addressed, like the Horse Protection Act, we'd like to see some improvements in that. Then we work with those those agencies on the regulatory side. Um, I mentioned um, just recently to a colleague, you probably don't realize how much regulatory work we do. We spend a lot of time with the Environmental Protection Agency. We're talking about pyrethans, which is fly spray. We're right. talking about rodenticides, which is rat control. Um, you know, and there's just a number of issues. You wouldn't believe how many times I have to call the Federal Aviation Administration because I have a farm owner who's upset about a drone that's flying over his pasture and it's frightening his horse. <laughs> so there's wow. it, the diversity of the issues is just phenomenal. Right. But and so the horse world is routinely communicating with you no matter whether it's an individual issue and or state and or federal, right? Yep, exactly. Horse owners call our office frequently and they ask us questions like, okay, so my child has some learning disabilities. Where do I find a well-qualified therapeutic riding facility? Or they'll call and they'll say, I've got to do my taxes. I don't understand the hobby loss rules. Where do I learn more about that? Or the next question might be, I bought a horse and I need to get the papers and I need to get it registered, but I don't know how to do that. Can you point me in the right direction? So it, Brian, it runs from the average horse owner who's got a horse in his backyard that he's just enjoying on the trail, who's got questions about some of this, all the way up to the jockey club, which is on the thoroughbred industry, which is a large organization who's dealing with a lot, a lot of uh, major uh, issues over there. Right. Yeah, race horses as an industry. It's not just the thoroughbreds, but you Correct. got standard Correct. breds, quarter horses. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. Well, I'm glad that I don't have to answer your telephone every day. <laughs> Julie, that's why. Okay. I, I, I tell people all the time, Jody, I never know what my day is going to be like some days. I come in with a plan for things that I want to work on, but when the phone rings, you never know where it's going to take you. Uh, well, it's it's never dull. No. Well, <laughs> Let me ask you one more question before we move on the topic, and that is, um, should individuals be members of the American Horse Council? Is it only for organizations? No, no, it's very important that individuals are members because when we have a call to action, when there's a piece of legislation that we're trying to influence, we turn to our members to write letters and we help them, we provide them with tools and resources to contact their congressional members because those congressional members want to hear from the constituents. I mean, they're happy to hear what I have to say, but it means more when Jody calls and says, hey, you need to know I'm voting for you or against you, and here's what I need you to help me with. So we really want individuals to be members of, of the organization. I also think it's important for individuals to be members because um, they need to stay abreast of what might be coming towards them. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we went through a whole challenge with um, electronic logging devices. 
and commercial driver's licenses. And we still work on that issue today. Um, but the real issue there was Jody doesn't even know that they were considering what size truck and trailer, what weight, gross weight might play in to having to have an electronic logging device. And Jody just wants to take his grandchildren and go down to the to the corner uh, show with two horses. He doesn't want to have to install an electronic logging device or keep a log book or all, do all those other things. But that's an education thing with the Department of Transportation that we spent a tremendous amount of time and energy. And in fact, if you didn't know this, they got so many phone calls from horse people, they had to set up a dedicated phone line just just wow. for the equestrian community because we were in such an uproar over that issue <laughs> well, well isn't that one isn't that good and then two you know that kind of response would then get to the right reaction but so um it's relatively easy for any individual to be a member and one of the big things would be information but you guys publish a monthly newsletter yeah. so if you were right mm -hmm. so a month yeah, we put out a monthly newsletter. Um, the other thing is we do offer a tremendous number of discounts. You would be surprised how many people join the American Horse Council because they get a discount on a John Deere tractor or they get a discount on uh, red brand fencing or whatever the, the product is that they might, they might be interested in. Uh, but it, it really creates that sense of community, that you're in the know and that you've got like-minded people who are also dealing with some of the same issues that you're probably dealing with. And this is a, it's a great avenue just to stay abreast of what's going on. Good. So I'm going to one more question on that topic before we move on, which is about because you guys talk about you're communicating with about a million horse people on a routine basis. But according to the president's letter not too long ago, the and based on research, there's about 30% of the U.S. households that have horse interests. And so my question is, how does the Horse Council and how do we as horse people help activate and get in touch with that 30% of the U.S. households? And do okay. you guys – go ahead. Nope, there's two, there's two ways. So we want you to be a member of the American Horse Council. That gets you the greatest amount of information flow both directions. But if you're a little reluctant to do that, we want you to join for free our Congressional Horse uh, Cavalry. All you have to do is go to our website, sign up. That puts you in the database that we only use when we need a call to action. So if we have a piece of legislation that we need you to reach out to your congressional member on, you're going to hear from us then. You're not going to get anything else from us because some people don't want us to, to, to flood their inbox, and we're okay with that. Um, but the point is, you're exactly right. About 30.5% of U.S. households contain a horse enthusiast. We think there are 2 million horse owners in the United States, and I reach a million. So my goal every day is to try to figure out how to reach that other million that, that are out there. And we really rely on our partners, whether that be other breed and discipline associations or state horse councils or even our um, stakeholders like Zoetis or Purina or others, um, Equine Network or American Horse Publications. I, the list just goes on and on. We really leverage all of those. Good, good. Perfect. That's that's really, really good. Um when you know so so brian we've talked about the with you know julie prior to this about the current status of the industry so you know can you expound a little bit on that 2017 study that you were talking about brian like the question that you were going to ask sure it's really it's uh time to talk about the economic impact and so, Julie, we'd really like you to, one, highlight, because the last study, you guys study every five years, to my info. So the last study was 2017. You've got one engaged to get going in 2023. And I believe there's a fundraising effort to help for funding source. This is a big question, but it's all relative. And the bigger question is, as as you waltz through the 2017 data, relative to the current status of the industry if we looked over 10 years from 2012 to 2022 what are we looking like and then do you have any expectation as to what 2023 is going to produce as you guys go study i know that okay. was a big question nope that's that's a lot to take in there so just for your listeners yes we do the study about every five years um 2017 i joined the american horse council in 2016 2017 we did this study uh i think you're 
your viewers can see the numbers here. We were really pleased. 122 billion with a B in total value added to the U.S. economy. That was up from the previous uh, study. We had a total um, employment impact of 1.7 million jobs. That's nothing to sneeze at, folks. That gets us lots of attention up on the hill. <clears throat> we had a population of 7.2 million horses in 2017. That was down 2 million horses from the last study. So there was, it goes up and down. Population goes up and down. Um, but we were really pleased. We did a new statistic that you mentioned earlier that we've never done before, which said 30.5% of U.S. households or 38 million households contain a horse enthusiast. So that's a great number. We use it a lot when we meet with congressional members. Um, we're really, really pleased with all of these, these statistics that came out of 2017. Now, we're getting ready for 2023. Going into the pandemic, we were a little nervous. We were concerned that things were going to get a little soft and we might see the industry contract a little bit. In fact, all anecdotes that we've heard is the opposite happened. Believe it or not, memberships went up in breed associations, registrations went up. Um, we saw attendance at events become, once people could get back out, booming like crazy. Lots and lots of attendees, lots of enthusiasm, large entries at shows and competitions. Um, so we're hoping that for 2023, we're going to see things really strong and healthy. We may see the horse population drop a little bit more because people may have slowed down with their breeding during the pandemic. On the other hand, I have lots of friends who breed who said, hey, I was home. I had time to study my pedigrees and figure this thing out. And I did some breeding while I was home. What else could I do kind of thing? Um, so we're, we're, we're really anxious about uh, 2023. We're going to ask some new questions in 2023 that we haven't asked before. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to seeing what results we get out of that. Um, it's so important that this data be collected, and it has to be fresh data. Um, you can only use 2017 numbers for so long before everybody sort of goes, Ugh. and so we really are looking forward to 2023. Now, I mentioned to you and Jody earlier, so I want to tell your, your listeners, there's three studies that are done. Our study, which is the most comprehensive of any study. There is a National Agricultural Statistics Service, or NAS study, which is done by the USDA. They do their study, but they only count horses that meet certain criteria. So the difference between my number of 7.2 million horses in 2017, their number was about 2.5 million. So their number is really geared towards horses that are on working farms production. Um, so it's a very different kind of number. And then the American Veterinary Medical Association does a study called PetSource, which really focuses on dogs and cats, um, called PetSource, of course. Um, but they do ask people who complete the survey to tell them how many horses they have. So they have yet a different population number. So we try to tell folks those data points are good for those purposes, but if you want the most comprehensive number, that comes from us. And in fact, our numbers are the one that a number of other people rely on, including the outdoor recreation uh, industry and a couple of others who want to know, you know, what, what, the, what the total impact is. Great. Yeah, I, I, I've seen it referenced, I mean, over my career. The American Horse Council has been referenced numerous times. It's, it's, it's a reflex, so I hear that one all the time in the industry. But I, I was aware of the other ones, too, and people do get confused because they don't understand that nuance and or where it's coming from. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's, a, it's an important factor. We are really campaigning. I'm going to do my little spiel now. We're really campaigning with USDA. Um, to fund a um, horse industry uh, census in the next couple of years. We're hoping we can get that done. It would be a complete census, inclusive of everything, because so much of the funding that we get from the government is is based upon the USDA's number, that 2.5 million that I mentioned, not the 7.2 million. So we need them to have a better number <laughs> so that we get better funding to help us with disease mitigation and other things that we need to do for the industry. It's all about herd health. Um, understood, and that's a great term, especially in today's time, because the American population is just another form of a herd. Um, but the... Um, the 
USDA and census because your study is a formal scientific study, but it's not the same as the population census because that's what you would be talking about. Is that correct? That that's if you've correct. Got the US, okay. Yeah, okay. because we collect data from from everyone who will participate in the survey, but we have to take that data and we have to run it through a model and we have to do some forecasting and some projections to get us to some of the numbers that we use. What we we don't count every horse. You know, that's why it's called an economic impact study. If they went and did an equine census, they would count every single horse. So that's, we really love them to do that. And are you getting positive momentum on that? Yep, we're getting positive momentum on that. And I'm really happy one of the leaders on the Ag Committee um, is a huge supporter of the American Horse Council and has been really instrumental in helping us kind of beat that drum. Well, good. That'll be exciting to see. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, I thought that was interesting when we talked about the, about, you know, the, the COVID times, I, you know, I did like a little personal survey a couple of years ago when the first thing hit and everybody was really worried about it. And I, I, you know, called, you know, 20 of my friends, horse trainers at, and because that part of my life is basically over, but I wanted to know the impact that it was just going to have from a horse trainer standpoint, because that's what I did for a living my whole life. And I think I talked to one trainer that lost one horse. The rest of them maintained. So, I mean, I thought that that was incredibly interesting that, you know, during everybody didn't know whether they were supposed to panic or not, everybody kept their horses in training because, you know what, we're still going to go show. That's what we want to do. So, Well, and I'll give you one more factoid to go with this. So, you know, during the pandemic, a lot of people moved out of the city and into rural areas. Um, got themselves some more space and some more elbow room. That gave them the opportunity. They worked from home. They had more free time. That gave them the opportunity to adopt more horses. We saw horse adoptions go up during the pandemic. And I jokingly said, I think what happened was somebody said, you know, I've always wanted to have a horse. Let me go over here to this rescue and talk to them, and maybe I can I can adopt something. And the rescue said, you know, horses don't like to live alone. Take two. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Um, so, so it was really interesting to see that trend because, you know, when we went through the recession many years ago, what we saw was people abandoning horses and relinquishing them to, to rescues and sanctuaries. We were very, very lucky, knock wood, you know, guys, during the pandemic, we didn't have that happen this time. So I'm, I was really pleased with that. Isn't that a, that's, that's great news. That's great yeah. news. Yeah. It was really interesting for sure. So, you know, and to feed along with this, um, and this is a Brian question right here too. Um, do you feel like the horse industry is growing? I mean, the horse industry itself growing, not just numbers, but the industry itself is it growing. You think we're shrinking, maintaining? I mean, what's what's your gut feeling? So not that I, your numbers tell you. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to tell you my gut says that we that we're doing well. We're, we're healthy. I would love to see us grow some more. If you take that 38 million households that contain a horse enthusiast and there are 2 million horse owners, we got a lot of potential. So there's lots of opportunities. The real challenge we have as an industry is to find ways to reach those audiences that make them feel welcome and make them feel that they can be engaged in this. Um, We're rolling out a new marketing initiative this year called Here for Horses. And it's all about how we're here for horses and horses are here for us. And you can be involved in any way you want to. You can be a spectator. You can be an owner. uh, You can be a volunteer. uh, You can get engaged at any level that you like. Um, It's amazing to me how many uh, people go to a rescue or a therapeutic riding center, want to volunteer. They fall in love with what we do. Next thing you know, they, they've bought their first horse or two, and it sort of goes from there. So our biggest challenge is to make this feel like an open pathway that people can find somewhere to get involved in the industry and not feel um, that it's just overwhelming them. We, we're our own worst enemies sometimes, you know. Child comes to take riding lessons, and the first thing the trainer says is, well, you're going to have to buy this, and you're going to have to buy that, and this is how much the lessons are, and blah, 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 blah. And the next thing you know, the parent's like, Hey, we can go play soccer. It's so much, so much yeah. less invasive. Right. I mean, that's it. That is absolutely true, and I think that's awesome that people have the option because, you know, I mean, to be perfectly honest, this is not a cheap hobby. Any any way, shape, or form, it doesn't matter what discipline you're in, and it gives people some options to get started where maybe they don't think that it's going to break their personal bank account to uh, to get their kids involved. So, no, that's that's awesome. 
Well, I, and I will, I'm not going to say that I'm a proponent or an opponent uh, of sports betting. But by the way, sports betting has brought us some new enthusiasts. People go, they are, you know, they're going to play the slots, they're going to do whatever they're going to do. And oh, by the way, there's a horse race going on. Now I can bet on that. Um, so, you know, exposure, that's what it's all about. <laughs> and, and, and I agree, but I want to ask you one on the betting because we've casually talked about that. And let me just. I, the simple question is moving horse betting because it's been around in paramutual and racing for our lifetime. But as you move into the competitive side of the space, are there things there that we as an industry need to be paying attention to? Are there concerns? Is that a target for horse betting now that it's digital? I, anyways, I, I've, I've merely raise that from a concept standpoint because we as an industry i think especially in the organized side of competition competition always breeds that whether it's formal or informal gambling who's going to win who's better it's just in our nature so any insights from your standpoint there yeah i think we're going to really have to be mindful and think about the lessons we've learned as sports betting has rolled out especially like on the racing side but right now there's a lot of conversation around fantasy gaming about taking some of the things that we're doing whether it's the hunter jumper shows or it's a, a dressage show or whatever it is and and making it such that there's more opportunities for some fantasy gaming or some sports betting type opportunities and i think we're gonna have to be really careful about that and be mindful of sort of some of the um the, the pitfalls or, or some of the, the downside that we might get into and sort of be more proactive in ensuring that we, we don't hurt ourselves in the long run by trying to make more money by doing some of those kinds of things. Right. I, we saw that, and Jody and I have been talking about it just from a concept standpoint since it all's kind of coming our way in modernization. So um, I, I was cur curious as you brought that up. It's amazing to me when I watch TV now and I see DraftKings and I see all those other things that are out there. You can bet on just about anything these days. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I mean, and, and it's, it, I like I said, it's coming. I mean, it, it will come. And I think with the, you know, with so many, so many casinos in the state of Oklahoma, not just the racehorses, but so many events that we have. I mean, it's a matter of time before Vegas or before a state like Oklahoma, with the, with as many casinos that 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 that, that horse betting on on a on a big roping, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, I mean those. I mean, they're paying hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Those guys, you know, the team ropings are now. Um, it's just a matter of time before it happens. I I think, but uh, how it's controlled, that's that's a whole other story. Well, you know, I talk a lot about the importance of understanding what the social license to operate is. Um, you know, so a social license to operate basically says that there are different levels of society that regulate the activities that we do using laws. And there's this second layer of permission that's granted or revoked by the public. Um, that second layer is called social license to operate. And a great example there is if you aren't mindful of what you're doing, your you can a public perception can affect your social license to operate think about the circus think about sea world think about greyhound racing so your point is well taken jody that we have to be really smart if we're going to go down that path because what we could end up unintentionally doing is hurting ourselves in the long run and affecting our social license to operate isn't Great. that a mm -hmm. That's a big point. And the circus, I've talked about that one several times in yeah. most recent years because that's a fascinating case study, uh, yeah. the circus and the fact that they actually got it shut down, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. The other topic that I talk a lot about that we need to be mindful of is people begin to believe now that horses should be considered or classified as companion animals or pets instead of livestock. And I'm I try very hard to warn people, you know, we don't want to go down that path. You know, horses are under the protection. I'm back to my herd health issue of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and we get government funding to help with that. If horses were not considered livestock, we wouldn't have that kind of funding or that kind of assistance from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. There are tax benefits we get, farm tax exemptions or depreciation. The liability laws apply to livestock, not to companion animals. So... People think that maybe horses being classified as companion animals or pets would be better, but 
we need to be really, really cautious about that because there are lots of things that are on here that <laughs> that I think could disappear and really jeopardize um, the the number of people who might continue to be engaged in the horse industry. And I'm sorry if people feel like this is about the dollars and cents, but if Jody says, well, gee, I got these horses and I no longer get any farm tax exemptions or I no longer get any depreciation and I can't own as many horses, maybe he changes his entire strategy about you know how he participates in the entire industry. So we need to be really conscious about these issues. Right. I think that that's a really valid point. And the point is, it's not about what your business is or isn't. It's about that classification on the legal level is in everybody's best interest. That I, I highly valid point. And I hear, I hear that a lot too. Uh, that's, I mean, that from us, from someone who's made a living and grown up in the horse business, second generation guy, that, that two things that first of all it would make me angry and then it scared the heck out of me i mean it's like that's uh you know that's uh you know a horse is a horse it's not a companion animal i mean it's uh yeah he's not uh not a not yeah you know, how would i ever get him into walmart for crying out loud right like, <laughs> <laughs> no but, but i mean I, seriously it's I, it's I, frightening I, I think you bring up a really valid point that i think all of us in the horse industry take for granted a lot in that point because what makes the horse, even though it's part of the livestock and part of agriculture and all that stuff, it has this very unique place with us because it hits us in a more emotional state than a lot of other livestock. And it's not that we don't love our animals, but that bond and relationship that horse men and women do with their horses, that puts it in this very unique space. I, so anyways, that's just kind of my take on it. And then when you try to waltz through the organization, you'll find yourself in some of these categories. But whether you're in the horse business or not, it is in everybody's best interest that horses stay categorized with the U.S. economy as livestock. That's the point, right, Julie? Yeah, yeah. and, you know, again, I can't emphasize enough, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is there to protect the health of the herd, and um, they ensure when we import and we export horses that we don't inadvertently bring in a catastrophic disease that could decimate the entire population. Um, and in my, I'm try, trying not to be chicken little here, but if that all went away, who would look out for the well-being of these horses and ensure that we don't have these diseases or these other uh, circumstances that might affect the overall herd health? Mm -hmm. yep. Absolutely. Extremely sure. valid point. Yep. Um, tell us real quick before we move on in topic um, because you got such a large herd that you're trying to keep <laughs> gathered up. I'm talking about the people that are involved in the horse world on the, and you made reference to consensus. And when there's a lack of consensus, you guys as an organization stay neutral, but, um, who's the driving force behind making those decisions? Where does that consensus come from? Is that a formal or informal kind of consensus? What, how are you guys doing that? Oh, that, that's a really complicated question. I'll give you a short version. So what okay. tends to happen is when an issue or a topic comes up that we think may have either a positive or a negative impact on the industry, it's a responsibility of the staff of the American Horse Council to do our due diligence, do our research, make sure we understand the issue thoroughly. Then that issue goes to the appropriate committee that we have. So we'll take an issue and we'll go to committee and we'll say, okay, here's all of our research we might form a task force to do even more research. We might ask more opinions. We might survey people. Everything we can to get as much information as we can. Then we ask the committee to determine if they have an opinion or a position that they want to recommend to our trustees. So the committee has to come together, and then the committee makes a recommendation to the trustees, and then the trustees get another opportunity to ask more questions, look at all that before the trustees makes a decision about where we want to go on something. I can give you numerous examples of issues that have popped up over time. A great one most recently you probably saw um, in the um, Washington Post um, was unsanctioned horse racing. So that has a lot of tentacles and a lot of different elements to it. The element we're most concerned about, again, is disease mitigation. And we often see at unsanctioned pop-up races that they're sharing needles, that they're, they're, they're um, 
in using things that they probably aren't in the best interest of the horse. And so what we're trying to do is determine what's the right strategy on unsanctioned horse racing. So that went through a task force. We did a tremendous amount of research. Then it went not only to our racing committee, it also went to our health and regulatory committee and our welfare committee. So three committees got to weigh in on that one to determine what might be the next steps that we want to take on that. So that's how it works, Brian. Got it. So people, either through their own organizations and or them as individuals, could get informed on the American Horse Council. And I know it's all on your website, so they can find those committees and then communicate kind of that way on issues. Would that be sensible? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're happy to call the staff, too. I mean, it's not unusual for somebody to call and say to us, hey, I've got a question about a particular topic or a subject and we'll go do a little due diligence on it, come back to them, and then we'll decide if we think it's something significant enough that we want to go to committee. Um, pyrethin is a big one for me right now. We, we all use fly spray. Everybody's got one of those squeeze bottles out there. Uh, and pyrethin is that chemical that's in that fly spray. We've used it for I don't know, 50 plus years, but for them to decide now that they don't have enough data to tell us whether or not pyrethin has some kind of negative effect on people that are bystanders, it's not about the horses, it's about the people, um, and decide that they're, they're gonna tell us that we can no longer use pyrethin, we said, wait, wait, we have fly spray manufacturers. They've got all kinds of data that can answer that question. Don't go there quite yet. And so we've put that off and we've provided them with some information about that. But that's a great, a great example of an issue that seems really small on the surface, but has huge implications. Thank you. Yep, we'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and move on. Um, and we've been hitting it, so uh, which is American Horse Council programs. And you have a long list because I know you guys are very active in a number of the areas across the uh, industry and issues. But um, And we've got up on the screen uh, a piece from your most recent um, newsletter, which was the December one, because all it does is kind of give a highlight to the uh, – all the programs that you guys have and and you made reference to your here for horses i got that got my attention as well as your marketing allowance alliance but um there were also some key things in the december newsletter that got my attention irs taxes venmo paypal um the six hundred dollar threshold versus 20,000, the difference between business commerce and just a consumer. And so I, we're not going to have the time to go into all those details, but just I use those as simple pieces, kind of highlight some of your programs, the Here for Horses you just made reference to, but um, so that the audience can truly begin to, one, understand, but then two, know to go to the American Horse Council um, dot org website because you guys are very active and very organized so go ahead so let me just preface this by saying because we are that neutral third party we're like switzerland if you will um we are often asked <laughs> by the industry to spearhead or oversee an industry um, initiative something that'll benefit the entire industry because we're that umbrella organization. So great examples, the Equine Disease Communication Center, because we've been talking about disease. We worked on that with the American Association of Equine Practitioners. Uh, we sponsor the um, horse microchip lookup tool. So that's a great place to go if uh, we have an animal control officer. He um, comes upon a horse and he scans him and he has a chip number. He can back up and he can find out all kinds of information about that horse and where he was registered and who he belonged to and all kinds of interesting information. The United Horse Coalition is the um, initiative that we have that helps horse owners who are at risk um, or have concerns about being able to maintain their horses. So it's a huge database if you need a hay bank or a feed coupon or you are looking for a gelding clinic or you need vet assistance. Go out there, go into the database, put in your zip code. It's going to tell you what's in your area that can help you out because our goal is for owners to be able to keep their horses uh, at home. That's that. We don't want them to have to relinquish them to rescues and sanctuaries. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have a research project right now called the Equine Welfare Data Collective. So we've known mm, kind of vaguely for many years how many horses we thought were in rescues and sanctuaries, but we didn't know exactly. So this is a research project that AAEP, ASPCA, and 
AHC went in together because we really wanted to get a handle on how many horses were in rescues and sanctuaries. You probably didn't know this, but there are mm, about a thousand 501c3 rescues and sanctuaries across the country. Um, we think the, to the capacity that they have is about 47,000 horses. They could probably take a few more if they had more resources, but that's not always available to them. But we also wanted to learn what are the most common ways a horse gets um, into a rescue or sanctuary, how long is its average length of stay. Dogs and cats go to a rescue and they can quickly be rehabilitated and be adopted maybe in 30 to 60 days. A horse is in a rescue or a sanctuary almost a full year, over 300 days. And that's because sometimes they have gotten in really poor health and it takes a long time to rehabilitate them, but they have to be retrained for a new career, lots of things like that. So we wanted to understand that because the whole idea behind this initiative is to be able to, to offer additional resources that will help address these little pinch points that we've, we've got out there. Um, and then I'll just close by telling you Two of the big projects that, that I'm really proud of that we did during the pandemic was we formed a diversity, equality, and inclusion task force. This is designed to help ensure that our industry is being open and embracing diversity and inclusion and equality. Um, and we've got a great group of folks working on that. And then we have a youth engagement task force, which is really working hard right now. To How do we get kids to stay in the horse industry. Now, you tell me, Brian, but a lot of kids get involved with horses. They stay maybe through high school. They go off to college. They, they kind of fade away. They start their careers. They start their families. They don't come back until they're in their 30s. So somewhere between, you know, that 18 to like 30 range, we have this big gap. And we're trying to say, okay, how do we, how do we solve that? that challenge that we've got right there? How do we make this easier for kids to get in and to stay in? That's an interesting question because I, I, I the, the sim, and I'm sorry for pausing and getting stuck, but because the point is, is that that significantly different over multiple generations? I'm not sure. That's a bigger, uh -huh. question. That's a bigger I, question. I, one of the things that I would be thinking about in the youth conversation is a fascinating one in the last 10 to 20 years. Um, unlike when Jody and I, and even you probably grew up and how we got introduced to horses and we can all tell our stories, but that's a cultural change because of the U S population and agriculture is now a minority, not in significance, but in volume. I mean, everybody was touched by the farm in our lifetime in today's time you're you're quite removed from the farm so that that's that's a cultural kind of shift and so your your question is fascinating in this is me i think that there are unique opportunities using technology one getting younger people fundamentally exposed to the fundamentals of what horses are and do and then two how do you get them directly involved um and the high school and junior colleges and even the university programs, because I see university programs growing um, with their equestrian programs. And I would see that as a key component, not only to feeding careers into our industry, but that they're getting, you know, mentoring and advice and some leadership and exposure that otherwise they may not. So I, it's a phenomenal question. I don't have the answer, but... Jody, do you got an insight on that? And Jody's got well, a niece that is a uh, head coach at OSU. So. Yeah, well, she, you know, and I, I tell you, I was, I was just going to mention that. He said it's great. Growing up in the horse business, it was awesome, and and because it was uh, when you're a when you're a, a young man, it's about five to one girls to guys, <laughs> right? And and it has not changed. And I can't tell you because I've trained for lots and lots of parents and lots and now second generations again. I mean. Uh, the girls come back um but it, it it is and it hasn't changed any it's still five to one how are you going to bring the boys into this thing i mean it's like i can tell you that there's you know huge numbers of parents that are stuck with trucks and trailers when the girls go to college because you know what okay we're not doing this anymore or they get married or they get a job and they, they'll come back to it just like you said julie in their 30s but um yeah it's 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 one-sided you know i think the the girls horse hearts are much bigger than the than the boys are so i always thought that that was interesting 
Well, and I, you know, I talked earlier about diversity, equality, and inclusion, and I'm a huge fan of Cowgirls of Color and Compton Cowboys and um, Detroit Horsepower and all of these other inner city programs and other programs that are bringing other ethnicities to our space, which is great. We need more people and we want to get them engaged. So it's just like the same thing with the boys. <laughs> we just got to find that little trick, whatever it is. And maybe it's the five to one ratio that we need yeah. to rely on there. <laughs> exactly. That would help. Maybe. Maybe we just need to tell the boys that here's where the girls are. Right, exactly. <laughs> it could happen. Um, and Brian, I know you know your time wise. We're gonna you you lead this because you you've got a better idea where you want to go, Julie. I just want to ask you another question once, and and this is one that I like to ask everyone. And it's like you know where and who do you think is leading the decision making and setting the standards in the horse business? I mean, we've got you know AQHA. You've got so many. The Morgan Horse Association. I mean, is it owners? Is it the trainers themselves that are running, uh, mm -hmm. kind of running the show? Is it the bureaucrats? Is it the heads of these associations? I mean, it's a tough question, but but who do you think has greatest input? Well, I'm going to give you a sort of a, a, a soft answer, Jody, but bear with me. I think it really varies based upon the topic. If we're talking about who makes who has the greatest influence when it comes to what competitions you're going to compete at or what events you're going to go to. I think trainers have a lot of influence there. Um, I think if you're talking about which trails we need to maintain or, you know, which trailheads need improvement or amenities in the forest service or the park service, that's horse owners. Those are the people out there using, using those things. Um, I do think that there are some bureaucrats that are really involved. You think about, uh, I just said, like the park service or the forest service, they have a lot of say in where we put some of these dollars for some of those improvements that we want to do there. So we have to be, we have to, we have to, you know, sort of dance with our partners a little bit, as they say, uh, on some of those, those issues. So I think each, each segment of the industry has um, a variety of stakeholders that have a little, uh, have a lot of influence on a very specific number of things. Okay, cool. Great answer. Thank you. Um, we're going to move on. I want you to, Julie, uh, tell the audience about the annual forum. Um, and one, how do they pay attention Two, what do you do with it? And, um, and three, why they should be paying attention to it. Um, so tell us about the American Horse Council's annual forum. Yeah, so each year the American Horse Council hosts our annual forum or our conference. It's traditionally been done in June, uh, and we um, have historically done it more in D.C. because it gives us access to congressional offices. But we're going to start alternating. So in June of 2023, we're going to be in Denver. I'm really excited about that opportunity. So we're hoping we're going to see some more of you uh, of you uh, cowboys out there, that Western Lifestyle Group, join us in, in Denver a little bit. Uh, and then we'll alternate between East Coast and West Coast. That's sort of our hope. Now, it's set up such that our committees meet um, over the course of about two days. So there's great discussion there. If you really want to get into the nitty gritty of the issues that we're talking about in the Equine Welfare Committee or say in the Racing Committee, then you can sit in on those meetings and hear all those conversations and, and be part of some of that conversation. We also have one or one and a half days that we call our, our National Issues Forum. And that's where we pick um, speakers and subjects that are really thought-provoking. They're intended to get people thinking outside the box and get them really looking ahead and say to ourselves, okay, what's the possible implication of this? So we might have a panel discussion um, on sort of what's going on. We did one this past year post-pandemic on horse prices. Golly, Pete, everybody was was talking about how horse prices had just skyrocketed. So we had a whole panel discussion about what horse prices were and how that was playing out and what we saw was going to be the trend there. Um, but we also had a great presenter that talked about um, how we take advantage of some of the benefits we saw from the pandemic. How do we keep riding the wave, as we call it? Um, we're, we're on this upward crest of the wave because we did so well during the pandemic. How do we keep that going? How do we leverage that? Um, so we'll have a variety of speakers that come in that really are intended to be very thought-provoking and to really get people thinking and talking about some of those issues that are, that are out there. Um, it's We have usually somewhere in the neighborhood of about 200, 250 people attend. It's it's the CEOs and the executive directors, the leaders from all of the, the various uh, breeds and disciplines. We'll see people from all of our stakeholder groups that are there. 
and um, we had a great conversation. You can hear some of these back on our website. They're recorded. Um, so we had a great conversation with our good friend Julie Freshman, who is an equine liability attorney. If you had, if you haven't read Julie's book, go buy Julie's book. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of hers. Um, and just really trying to make people aware of some of these issues that. Equine liability laws are different from state to state or locality to locality. It's not as simple as just putting up a sign on the wall and thinking you got yourself covered. And that was what Julie's whole subject matter was about, was how to be sure you, you understand what you've got to do there. Um, so lots of good content there, Brian. And we do take suggestions from people. So if there's a subject that you somebody wants us to explore, we did CBDs a couple of years ago. That was a hot topic. Let's, okay, should we be using CBDs on horses or not? <laughs> I think it's still a hot topic. I mean, it's still a hot topic. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of, um, I, I'm not sure if there's much scientific or research data behind that or not, but everybody wants to kind of know those. I think it is a very hot topic. Yeah, it was really an interesting discussion with the group that was an attending for that because there are clear opponents and proponents. There were people who were like, hey, I'm, I'm taking it myself. I see the benefits that I've had. Why wouldn't I want to give it to my horse? And the people on the other side of the room were saying, you've got no scientific data to prove those benefits that you're talking about. Mm. Right, right. I think that that's, that's an interesting modern topic, and it goes into the bigger one of welfare. And Jody and I spend a lot of time talking because we are, we've got a big focus in the competitive side of our industry. And so modern medicine and where does that play in our sports and competition and all of that, and that goes into betting as well. So I, I think that that's all very interesting stuff. So thank you. Thank you for sharing. Jody, you got anything? No, actually, I, you know, I was, I was thinking about that too. So, and I just about, I, I'm actually trying to figure out a way to get to the forum, right? I mean, that's <laughs> kind of what I was started thinking about that. Do you, Julie, would you like to see numbers at that grow? I mean, would you? Oh, uh, yes. you okay. Oh, yes. I mean, and, and during the pandemic, we did a lot of virtual stuff and we've going to continue to do some of this virtually. So more people get the opportunity to, to participate. Um, one of the things I love to do guys, and this is just me as a leader is I'm, don't like to reinvent the wheel. I like to look around at other industries to see if they, if there's something that they've learned that we can model. So for example, we might go to the PGA and say, hey, you've got this great youth program called First Tee. It's about getting kids into playing golf. How do we emulate that in the horse industry? What, what do we do? Or we might go over to the American Kennel Club and say, there's a lot of similarities in the dog world and showing dogs and competing with dogs and all the things you guys do. What, what can we learn from you, you know, over here? Um, and our industry is so diverse. A couple of years ago, we had the guy from the U.S. Tourism Association, and we were talking to him about tourism. Well, you know, Jody, in Oklahoma City, the American Morgan Horse Grand National is one of the biggest horse shows they put on at the Oklahoma Fairgrounds. And they've quoted some huge statistic of how many dollars of tourism they bring in into Oklahoma City. So we're saying to the Tourism Association, okay, how do we leverage what we're doing to get ourselves in a better position on some of these venues that we use for these competitions and things? Because we're bringing them money. We're bringing them tax dollars uh, into these communities. How do, how do we use that data? Um, so you'll, you'll, if you, if you come to the forum, Jody, you'll hear me talk a lot about some of these other groups that we've sort of gone out and cherry picked and said, what can we learn from you? How can we take something that you've experienced and apply it to what we do? No, that's, that's great thinking. And Brian and I, we talk about that. We talk about that same topic. Um, because you know, you're, you're certainly blind if you stay in your, if you stay in your own barn, you know, you need to get outside and, and look in some other areas. And that's just, that's great thinking. And I, uh, and hopefully I can get there. It's a little bit, it's a little bit short notice, but I, I'd love to come and, and, uh, and, uh, and listen to you talk in person. That would be great. Hey, Jody, my, my next topic, if I can find a speaker is pickleball. Pickleball has taken off like crazy. What, how can we? How can we become the pickleball? You We've know, you just you just <laughs> hit two keys. I, I've been I use the analogy of uh, first tee with golf, and you're now hitting one because I've been using that one. Jody and I talk about it a lot. Pickleball didn't even exist. I don't know, you know, ten years ago, and now it's got a professional league and away you go. And so, yes, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on on 
getting out of our barn, looking a little bit bigger? How do we, you know, look at other industries? How have they done it? Are there different ways we can do it? Um, I've, I use the first ride because how do we get those 38 million households that have horse interests and how do we get them to their first ride or first touch or whatever that is? And um, Yes, I love to explore that. Yeah, I think that's awesome. I, I I talked to Brian about that a few a few weeks ago, and and just in casual conversation with Chelsea, and I said, look, I said the horse world needs pickleball because it would unite everyone, right? I mean, it would give everyone that they could do the same thing instead of being so diverse like we are, right? I mean, it's you know you can look. It doesn't matter if you rope or if you, you know, show rail horses or flat saddle horses. Or it, it, we need something that everyone can do and have fun and be competitive at it. So we haven't found that yet, but, you know, <laughs> perhaps it'll come. It might come out of the Denver Forum, right? You never, never know. know. No, never right? know. Well, Julie, we can't thank you enough. Um, we, we've, we're on our time, and I know that we could all just keep going. All of us have the enthusiasm and passion and love for our industry that we do, but we can't thank you enough for not only you and your time, but the American Horse Council. And so your commitment to the Horse Council and the resources and organization of the Horse Council and what you guys are doing for all of us. So um, I can't say thank you enough. And I really appreciate we, on behalf of Jody and I in the Cowboy Office, we, we just say thank you. Well, I, I thank you guys. You know, I tell people um, all the time uh, what I do for a living. You know, I get on the elevator and somebody says, well, hi, what do you do? And I say, oh, I work for the horse industry. And they were like, oh. And, and so I'm that, that constant communicator and talking about why this is so important and how essential it is to the, to the ability to our industry to thrive and survive and be sustainable is that we keep educating people and we keep, you know, passing on that message along and keep drawing people into it. When I do that economic impact study, those numbers are so powerful. Um, so it's, it's really vital that we get some of these, these messages across. And I appreciate you guys giving me some airtime to, to talk about that with, with your listeners. Without a doubt. And we'd love to follow through with you over the course of the year on several of those things. Um, let me ask you a last question. Your 2023 impact study, will that be end of calendar year when we would see that or what's your expectation? There? Yep. So right now we're in the process of finalizing the survey questions. We're in the deep, deep end of that right now. Uh, survey will probably go out about April. It'll run for about six months. So we're shooting for probably around the uh, fourth quarter to have the final report. Um, we're really excited about that. Um, and, um, you know, I've got a lot of uh, stakeholders that are helping us with survey questions this time and uh, contributing ideas for that. Uh, and we are offering prizes this time for people. So make sure your, your <laughs> listeners know if you complete the survey, you're going to be eligible for, for some great prizes. So that's our incentives is to get people to, to fill out the survey this time. Uh, but we're really excited about having those numbers as we go into the into the fall next year. Um, what we did when we in 2017 was we had a big unveil and we had a, a huge webinar and invited anybody that wanted to hear the numbers to come here and ask questions and, and talk about all the things that are that were associated with, with the survey. And this time, like I said, um, I've got so many more numbers that we're going to try to get this time. Uh, we didn't even have time to touch on the whole idea that we've got a veterinary shortage and what does that look like. So we're going to really be interested in universities, how many students are in the pipeline, what do we think the next wave of our leadership in the industry looks like. We're going to be looking more at horses that are on Native American lands or on federal lands. We don't typically count them in the survey, um, but we're really curious because we're looking at what's that overall population and how's that come into play. Um, so lots of new things that we're, we're asking this time. I really would like to get at how many, um, uh, the labor force, how many workers do horse trainers, Jody, how many, how many workers do you need? How many do you have? What's the, what's the gap there? Because we're fighting for visas in order to get foreign workers in to help us on the backstretch or in our barns as grooms or hot walkers or whatever. And we've got to make our argument with this number. And right now, what we can tell them is we need them. We really, really need them, but we don't have a number. And so I'm trying to say, here's how many we need and here's how many we have and here's how big the gap is so we can make that case. So lots of new things to come out of the survey, I think, this time around. Yep. Well, that that's exciting. I 
Jody is a very strong proponent, and he talks about education. We can't educate ourselves enough, a lot and a lot and a lot, and so I'm not trying to steal his thunder, but we, Jody and I in the Cowboy Office, however we can help the Horse Council in continually educating the populace and all of us in the horse world, we're all about it, so you just we'll stay in touch, and so um, we look forward to more. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to talking with you guys some more. And if you want a progress report sometime, you know, in down the road as we get the survey going, I'm happy to come back and tell you, you know, how many responses we've had to date and sort of what we're starting to see look like some preliminary data and what, what we need to, to shore up around that. We'd, we'd awesome. love and to. We'll, yep, we'll have you back. Anyway, Julie, thank you so much. I mean, you've been great. Happy to do it. Um, I'm going to close this out again. Thank you so much, Julie. And thank you to the American horse council and all of your staff. I I know how hard all of you work for all of us. And so thank you very much. We will put direct links, uh, through the cowboy office, um, website, but to the audience, horsecouncil.org is where you can get straight to, um, the American horse council. Remember that it's simple. It's easy. Uh, you can get right to it when as our show publicizes to the audience we want you to remember to simply hit the subscribe and or like button um, on whatever platform you visit us on and um, until next time enjoy the ride yep thank you and julie again thank you brian thank you um we look forward to the next show stay in the middle Today's episode is brought to you by 4D Productions in cooperation with the Consultment Agency, a full-service agency that helps bring forward-thinking equine brands into the 21st century using digital skills and services such as website development, graphic design, social media, and media production such as the podcast you're consuming here today. Thank you so much for riding along with us today. Sign up at cowboyoffice.com to be the first to know about topics affecting the industry we love so much. You can reach out to us with topics you care about by finding us on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and all podcast platforms. And remember, share this episode with someone that may enjoy it, because the more we can share our horses with others, the better our world will be.